Thank you, Bright, for that. I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're here with us um, this morning. And we're going to jump into our text here in a moment, which we're going to kind of go um, again back into John that we have been in for um, several months now. But tomorrow, our nation um, observes, celebrates um, a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And so I wanted to pray to begin our time by reading a prayer from him that he prayed publicly during his ministry, and we'll pray, and then we'll jump in to um, the text. If I did not mention my name, my name is Jeremy. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd love to, to connect with you afterwards. If you're new with us, if you're um, you know, first time here and, and I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, if you have time, stick around afterwards. I would love to meet you face to face. Now let me pray for us. O oh God, the creator and preserver of all mankind, in whom to dwell is to find peace and security, toward whom to turn is to find life and life eternal. We humbly beseech thee for all sorts and conditions of men, that thou wouldst be pleased to make the ways known unto them. Thy saving health unto all nations, we also pray for thy holy church universal, that it may be so guided and governed by thy spirit, that all who profess and call themselves Christians may be led into the way of truth and hold the faith in unity of spirit, in the bond of peace, and in the righteousness of life. Finally, we commend to thy Father's goodness all those who are in any way afflicted or distressed in mind or body. Give them patience under the suffering and power of endurance. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think when we um, stop during this time of year, I think it's a good reminder for us to continue to, as, as a people, as a church, to continue to um, push back and fight against racial injustices in our city, in our state, in our nation, and all around the world. I think it's a good reminder for us as the church to remember that on this particular day um, for sure. But to jump into our text, uh, to, before we get there, I want to um, set us up and, 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 and um, share a riddle. I think this is the first time ever I've started off a, ser a sermon with a riddle, um, but I think this is a riddle. Um, here it is. What is something that we all want, but because of who we are, we don't get it? What is something we all want, but because of who we are, we don't get it? And there could be probably a few answers to those, that question, but the answer I'm thinking of is community, is community. It's something we all want, but because of who we are, because that we're imperfect, we often bring our baggage, our stuff, our preferences into community, and we don't end up getting the kind of community that we actually want because of who we are. And we need help with that. But here's the deal. God is hardwired. I believe God, God has hardwired community into all of us. He's created us with this longing to be a part of something, to, be, to have a tribe, to be on a team, to be able to look around at other people and say, I, be, I belong to you and you belong to me in a unique way. This is why some of the um, greatest um, television shows of all time are built around community. And, and most shows try to do this in some form or fashion. You think of, throughout the years, you think of Cheers, you think of Friends, you think of The Office, even The Walking Dead is built a lot around community. And I keep thinking on Friends, right, they, like they never have jobs, 
right? So we don't need to follow them into that, right? They, they don't do anything. They work. They just sit around in this coffee shop, right? And again, the, the rest of those shows, though, are, are real, right? They have all the things are tied down in the rest of those shows. I just was highlighting Friends because that's always bothered me about Friends. Um, but here's the deal, right? We are hardwired for unity um, or, or community, and we're going to use those words a bit interchangeably um, this morning. Um, but to do that, we have to die to ourselves. There's sacrifices required on our end to step into community or to have unity with a group of people. We have to give up something. We have to sacrifice things. A great example of seeing this kind of played out in history are how cities were created, right? Um, how cities came to be. Jacques Ellul, a French sociologist, I don't think I said that right, but he says the driving force in ancient history, there was this kind of um, compulsion in people to want to get together in ancient history. They, they, they felt um, isolated. They needed protection. They wanted to be closer to do commerce and trade. So people started gathering together in towns and in cities. And that was almost like this, and I would say God ordained, God got hardwired into people. But historians say it was almost like they were, they were uh, propelled towards each other in community to try to do this thing called life together. But we know cities aren't perfect, right? When, when we, maybe the, the beginning of cities, there was some idealism there, but we know that um, humans are a part of cities, and when a human join, humans started joining cities, um, we're selfish in that way, right? Um, I'll live near you as long as you play by my rules. I'll be in the same town as you as long as you kind of play um, by my rules, and I'm entitled to this. Or you have to look a certain way or behave a certain way to be a part of this city or this section of the city, Right? So the initial impulse to join cities was a good thing, but humans are involved, so it ends up tainting and wrecking a lot of the dream that is a city, and that can go with any, for, for any community, really. And not, not, not all cities are bad, right? We know the things that come out of cities are laws, hospitals, schools, um, but there's much evil that come out of cities as well. And this is an example of how humans, when, they, when we step into doing something like community or pursuing unity, it often goes sideways. But true Christian unity says your needs come before mine. True Christian unity says your flourishing is as important as my flourishing. And we kind of like that idea of community. We like this idea of being a part of a people where we're known and protected and loved and we belong to something and we're approved by a group of people. And God created us to feel that. But left her up to our own power to be a part of um, true community, biblical community, we need help. We need a lot of help to be able to come into community and see it flourish in the way the Bible describes it. So this morning we're going to talk about how do we get there? How do we get that help? Who do we look to to allow us to be a part of a community or form unity around um, other people? So let's jump into the text. We're going to start with some background, and then we'll get into kind of the, the main idea or meat of the passage today. <clears throat> Sorry, I've developed this cough this morning. Hopefully it's not too bad throughout. Um, so with everything going on, Jesus, right? John 17, we pick it up in verse 20. So verse 20 um, Imagine Jesus is coming to the end of his life on earth, right, before he's resurrected. Right? He, the, the very next chapter in the book of John has him betrayed, then he's arrested, and then he's put to death horrifically on a cross. And he knows all of that is coming, yet he has chosen to stop and pray. This, this sweet moment with his disciples to stop 
and pray, talk to his heavenly father, God, but he's also interceding for us. He's speaking on our behalf. He's asking the father things for us. And that's mind-blowing when you think of the pressure and the anxiety and the buildup that Jesus would have had of knowing what lies just hours in front of him. It just shows, once again, how much Jesus cares for his people. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And you look at these pronouns here, right? The previous section of the prayer, he prayed for these, or the close, the 11 disciples at that point who were in the room. That, that's the these here. But he says also here, I pray for those. Who are those? Who will believe in me through their word, right? So the, the, the there at the end of that is actually the apostle sitting in the room, but he's praying for us because we are the those there that actually believe through their word, Right? And we see that, that this prayer is widening in scope in this chapter, in John chapter 17. We, uh, Jesus started by focusing on God, the Father. Then he moves to the apostles, the 11 in the room. And now he's shifting to, to talk to us, um, pray for us, even the, those, those of us sitting in this room now who are followers of Jesus. And he's praying for those who will actually believe in him through our ministry through our word. And, and we can't skip over that word word there at the end of that verse, right? That word means um, that the, 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 the people in the future would come to know him through the apostle's word. Well, we know what, what is another name or description for the apostle's word. It's the Bible, right? The Bible was written by the apostles through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's revelation to man. So when it says through their word, he, yes, he's using us to, to further the gospel in the world, but he's actually using us as vehicles to preach the gospel because the, the word of God, the gospel of God, is what changes hearts. We are the vehicles. We are the proclaimers of that word. Now, let's look at verse 21. That's kind of the background that kind of sets us up here. This is the main idea, verse 21, that they, he's speaking to us now, that we're the they, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there are three parts to this verse, and that's going to kind of form and shape the rest of our time. We're going to tackle these three ideas in this particular passage, but we're also going to look at uh, verses 22 and 23 a great deal as well. So the next slide is going to have all three of those up there. And we're going to kind of walk through these, and it's going to help kind of see where Jesus is going in this prayer. So look at verse 21 again, that first phrase, that they all may be one. That's the first thing that Jesus prays for here, that we would be one. In verse 22, it says, the glory that you, give, you have given me, I, give, I have given to them. Here it is, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 23, I have an underlined, I and them and you and me. Here it is, that they may become perfectly one. So Jesus prays, first off, that we would all be one. He wants us to be one, that we may be perfectly one. So our first kind of idea today is that he wants us to be one. He wants us to be unified. He wants us to exist in unity. That is clear here from this passage. That's what Jesus wants. Now, we know, and probably even if you're not a follower of Jesus in here, you haven't spent a lot of time in the scriptures, you know what it takes to live in unity with other people, what it means to live in community. We for sure see this in the scriptures, right? It means denying yourself. It means laying down your preferences. It means putting others' interests above your own and others' needs above your own. 
loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemy the same way you would love a, 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 a person who's not your enemy. All these things give us kind of the, the how or what is living in unity look like. One of the best places is the, the, um, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read those really briefly for us. Matthew 5, 3. This is the description of someone who's living in unity. I think we can read it that way. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We have the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, says this in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So this, these words are descriptors of kind of our actions and our posture towards other people that will bring unity. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things consistently laid out in Scripture what would give us direction for us to live in unity. And Jesus prays that our relationship with God the Father and Jesus would follow or mimic the relationship between the Father and Son. So that brings us to our next question, right? To answer, how are we to be one, right? So we're, he's calling us to unity. The next question should, from us should be, well, how does that look? How do we do that? That seems so hard. You read the Beatitudes, like, that is almost an impossible task to live this out, to be the kind of person the Beatitudes are describing. And that's kind of the point, right? It's kind of the point to show us that we can't do these things perfectly, that we need help. Well, we're going to get to the help, Jesus is. Um, we look at what the relationship between the Father and Son look like. So Jesus wants to draw our attention there. John 21, once again, that they, may be, they, that they may all be one. And here it is. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then in verse 23, that verse starts with, I in them, and you in me. Okay, so we have this, this model, this example that Jesus is laying out. The way that Jesus exists in the Father, and the way the Father exists in the Son, that mysterious kind of mind-blowing idea of the Trinity, we don't understand it all, but we know for a fact that they love one another. Right? The Father and the Son love one another, and they are uniquely united together through the Trinity. So Jesus is actually praying to God, saying, hey, the same way the thing we got going on, God the Father, I want you to, 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 to allow them to have that same kind of relationship, that vertical human-to-God relationship um, that we have. One commentator said that it's helpful to, instead of reading all the ends in these, this this passage, because it, it, it can get kind of wordy, using the word locked in, right? So the Father is locked into the Son. The Son is locked into the Father. And the Jesus wants the Father to give us the kind of relationship with Jesus and God the Father where we are locked in with them. So the Father is so united to the Son that, that imagine God the Father wants nothing more than the Son to be glorified. Nothing more. Jesus the Son wants nothing more than God the Father to be glorified. He seeks the Father's glory above everything Jesus does. And now we are invited into this reality. Like what in the world? Like what, what does that even mean? What does that look like? And that's 
why Christians can spend a lifetime trying to understand how we fit into this and grow in our experience of it. And that leads us to joy. In verse 22, he says, he's, uh, God, Jesus has taken the glory that God has given to him. It says, the glory that you gave me and I have given to them so that they can be invited into this reality. Right? The, so God gives Jesus glory. Jesus turns around and gives glory to us so that we may be united uniquely to Jesus and God the Father. C.S. Lewis says it brilliantly, as he always does here. Listen to how he describes this. Christians believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity of a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irre irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. This is C.S. Lewis kind of meditating on and thinking about this passage and this idea of the union between God the Father and God the Son and us being invited into that union. And Jesus is praying to God that this would become our reality. He cares about us so much that this would be the reality that we would experience. So if this is something that Jesus prayed about, hours before he would become betrayed, arrested, crucified to death, if, if, if this is what was on his mind in those moments, and this is what he's praying to God the Father for, we should pursue it. We should pursue it. We should pursue to understand and know and experience this reality of being united to the Father and united to the Son through his grace. Right? We realize and we live out this union to Jesus and the Father. Right? This is speaking of an experiential, devotional, worshipful relationship with Jesus. So if those of you who maybe are, <clears throat> have struggle uh, like thinking of your relationship with God or relationship with Jesus as a, as a, uh, as a relationship, as, a, as an experiential relationship, I, I, I want to encourage you and challenge you to dig a little deeper there, right? to go a little deeper that this is a relational thing. This is a relational thing. Christianity is following a relational God who wants you in a relationship with him. Right? And this doesn't mean, these are good, but this doesn't mean reading books about the Bible. This doesn't mean, mean listening um, to your favorite podcasts or coming in here and just listening to these sermons or going to Bible studies. These are all important things to do, but these are all secondhand things. It's like you're grabbing something from a, so someone else's relationship and learning from them. Again, nothing bad about that. But if that, is, if that consists of your whole walk with the Lord, if your whole life as a Christian consists of those things, it's not, you're not going to experience joy. You're not going to experience peace. You need a firsthand knowledge relationship with Jesus, that you love him and you follow him and you strive to know more about him. Right? And it all begins with the members of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and it flows into how we are united to Jesus as well, and through Jesus, the Trinity. And some people, you may be thinking out there, just in case you are, why is the Holy Spirit not mentioned in this passage? Well, 
that Jesus mentioned the Holy Spirit plenty in these several chapters. So we know that Jesus believes that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. But all we can gather is that Jesus chose to focus on the relationship, unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son in this particular passage. And he didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. But when we talk about the Trinity, we can't leave the Holy Spirit out. Now, this next verse, I think is uh, this week has been such a worshipful verse for me as I've read this and thought about this, and it gives us even more depth and insight into what Jesus is praying on our behalf for. He says this, Father, in that familial language, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. I want them with me, God. I want them near me. I want them with me. I love them. I want him with me to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Like I have this glory and I want them to experience that glory in, in fullness. And why do they have that glory? Because you've loved me. You've loved me and so I have this glory and I want them to be there when they get to see my glory in fullness. And as a follower of Jesus, we know we won't experience that glory fully. Like it's still dim to us. There's still shadows. We can't see it fully because we're, we're not perfect, and we can't see and understand all those things. But there will be a day when we die or Jesus returns where we will be glorified, and we will see him as he is, and we'll experience his fullness of glory. And that's what Jesus is thinking about when he's praying here. I want him with me, God. Bring him home. My bride, the church, bring him home to me. The same way a groom awaits and anticipates being married to his bride, this is Jesus almost. You hear the, the ache in, inside of him and his desires to be with those who he loved. And we need to see and feel this. If this language I'm using is making you uncomfortable right now, I'm going to challenge you to dive into that because that's what you need to feel. We need to feel and, and to feel this experiential nature of our faith, our relationship with God. When we think about this, any wonderful experience that we have, think of like a, a really beautiful spot for a vacation, right? Then one of the first things you feel inside is, I want to experience this with someone. I want to experience someone that I, that, that, that I love. I want to experience this with them. Some of you that maybe are married or dating or um, even, even uh, roommates or whatever, you, you experience something in the moment and you're like, man, I wish they could see this. Man, I see that sunset out there. I get this just this week, some beautiful sunsets. I've thought, Man, I'm driving and there's no one in my car. I want, I want my boys to see this. I want my wife to see this with me. Or we, we see this movie or we see this new TV show and, and you experience that. And you're like, man, I want someone else to come in and watch this with me. This is human nature. And I think this is what Jesus is feeling here. He doesn't want to be alone with just his glory. He wants his, his people, those he loves, to be with him. The part of the joy that is overflowing in Jesus is, is being with us and experiencing that glory and that relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He wants us to be a part of that, this beauty and glory that, that, that is the kingdom of God that we'll experience one day. He's saying, God, I want them there with me. I've experienced the glory you've given me, and I want them to experience in fullness as well. Let's go back to John 21 through 23, because now we're going to hit our last. So um, be one. And now he's given us the example of what it looks like to be one in the Father and the Son. Now he's going to address the whole point of this. We're going to get a, a couple of so that's here, which when you study your Bible, you know that so that is for the purpose of. Or this is what was done before, said before, for this particular reason I'm about to say. So there at the end of verse 21, he says, so that, all these things that we've talked about, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want the world to, to know that I have come from God. 
that they can see God, that they can experience God in me because I am fully God as well as being fully man. We get another one in the end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This doesn't terminate on just Christians being in unity. This unity that followers of Jesus have actually serves a purpose to actually bring more people into the kingdom, to have more people see the love that God has for them and that what the work of Jesus and what he did on their behalf. So the final kind of point today is that, that the world would believe that, Jesus sent, that God sent Jesus, that they would see Jesus for who he really is. So the unity, of, the unity that Jesus is praying for is for a fuller experience that we can have with God so that we'll be unified and the world will see that. So you could say that unity is one of the best apologetics for the gospel, for our faith, for what we believe in, right? Unity is one of, if not the most important thing that people are going to be influenced by when they're considering becoming a follower of Christ or, or joining a church, right? And this is the way that it's designed. He's laid this out in a certain way, and he's done that here. What it also means is we can't separate the mission of the church from the unity of the church, right? Like you can't just say, well, we have, the, we have the community part of the church, we have the mission part over here. The purpose of unity is actually mission. This is what Jesus is saying here. So when you just talk about community and not mission, that doesn't exist in, in, in the scriptures, right? All of our unity, the way we love and treat one another, is aimed at mission. And you can't have mission without community. They go together. If we're to be salt and light, if we're to be witnesses, if we're to be ambassadors, we must be unified. We must be unified. And, this, is the, the, and this, this even gives more weight to the local church being the hope of the world. Right? When local churches are planted in an area, that gives people the visible um, picture of how the father and son relate to one another. Because it's brothers and sisters in Christ loving one another, existing in unity, and it allows people to see that and believe. So the, one of the greatest, or if not the greatest, missionary strategy is to plant churches, which is why we believe in it so much as a church. So what does this look like? Okay, we know. We, I, hopefully, you see the importance of it. Hopefully, that's been you, you've been convinced of that. Let's actually talk about nuts and bolts um, where, where the rubber meets the road, because this is not easy. This is not easy. Nothing I've said this morning is going to be easy. But notice Jesus prays for unity and not uniformity. Very big distinction. Not, he prays for unity, not uniformity. This means that we might have theological differences on non-first-tier like, issues. There are some things we do have to hold in common, some orthodox stuff. But under that, secondary, tertiary, um, to, that, that, that unites us, right? Like we can still say, you know, we're, we're, we're going to kind of agree to disagree here because we're not, um, we're not the same. We're in unity, but we're not uniform. We're not all, we don't all look alike. This means we might have political differences. Like you can have different political differences and exist in unity, right? Because we don't all have to vote the same to be in unity together. It means that we might have differing opinions based on our experiences, based off of our age, based off of where we grew up. That's okay. That's, that's the beauty of the local church, that it's not uniformity, it's unity. And this means we don't take our preferences or opinions and elevate them to the point that it breaks unity. This is one of the kind of teachings that comes out of this passage. And we see this in the Trinity, right? Go back to the top, the Trinity, right? There's unity, but there's also diversity. There's one God 
yet there's three persons. That is the, that's, that's unity and diversity right there, right? We see this in the New Testament church, the poor and the rich together, Jew and Gentile together, Europeans, Africans, Asians, all together in the church, right? Unity, not uniformity in culture, background, skin color. It's unity, not uniformity. And people outside the church, this is, this is difficult, right? You just kind of look around at the world at all. Trying to get people to agree on things right now is super difficult. Super difficult. Not just in the church, but outside the church, right? It's hard. Because we're, we're bent in our sin nature to find people that look like us, that agree with us, who will affirm our belief. Yeah, I'm right. We're going to gather over here and kind of tribe up and do this thing. And all of you got it wrong, so we're going to be against you. So we kind of drift into unity of the people who we think look like us, act like us, believe what we do. We want to be unified with them because it's easy. You don't have to like work through anything when everybody just agrees with you. And you can kind of look at the other side and say, oh, that tribe's wrong. Or that tribe doesn't have it. That's kind of the way the world works. This is why the, an expression of a unified people who don't look alike, who don't vote alike, who don't believe everything alike, it's a beautiful, unique, otherworldly, alien thing that God is calling us to. And that's why it's so attractive. The world peers in and says, how do you all do it? How do you all do it? How do you all stay unified around the gospel, around Jesus, around the scriptures, and yet look so different from one another? And it's supernatural. It's supernatural. And that's why we can't do it on our own. It won't happen if we just go out and do it, which is why Jesus is laying out the union piece, the union between God and the Father, shaping our union with him, that shapes our, how we do community and union with other people. And we see the logic here, right? We see the flow in Jesus' mind, what has to take place before we get to unity. This requires diligence, requires intentionality, requires a lot of hard work. He repeats this earlier in the gospel, John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Philippians 2, 3, 3 through 4. This is Paul again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then the, 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 going back into John 17, the last two verses here, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And he kind of circles it all back around here to end this prayer, goes back to that unity, that union piece, Right? And he also brings this idea of love here in. The, the love is kind of this thread that has worked all the way through this. Right? The way this expresses itself in love. The way that expresses the, the, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is love. The, the, the relationship between Jesus and us is love both ways. The relationship between brothers and sisters in the church is love. The relationship between us and the world is love. It all comes back to this idea of love, kind of tethered to this idea of union. How do we do this practically? I'm going to give you some action steps here. Number one, two things, I think, to try to kind of, what do we do from here? How do we be more intentional? How do we practice these things? Number one, our union with him. Kind of take that big idea. Um, we must have, again, we must have people, we must be a people who have a firsthand experience of knowing God, period. It's where it starts. 
And that, that includes reading your Bible, includes praying on your own with God. It means creating spaces of silence and solitude in our noisy, word, noisy world to think, to reflect on this idea, reflect on the fact that Jesus is praying to God, I want to be with them. I want them with me. I love them so much. I want them with me now. I want them to experience the fullness of my glory. That's what Jesus wants from us. So allow that to kind of push you into spending time with him, to pull you into spending time with him, I should say. But you have to create space for that. You're just not going to fall into an experiential relationship with Jesus. You're not. You're going to have to create time in your schedules to do these things. And it can't just be a bunch of frantic activity. You've got to slow down. You've got to reflect. And you've got to listen. Okay? Um, Jonathan Edwards has this... Um, I love this illustration. He, he, we've talked about this before here, but he talks about honey, the difference between seeing and tasting it. You know, you can, you can show someone a picture of honey, um, and um, it, you see that picture of honey. Yeah, that looks good, that, that honey kind of dripping off that honeycomb or whatever, and um, you, can, you can kind of translate the description of honey into different languages. You can have commentaries around, like the book of honey, and you can listen to other podcasts about how awesome that honey tastes and how sweet it is but you're not going to ever know how truly sweet the honey is unless you taste it. And once you taste the honey, you're like, yes, that's it. Come on, come taste this stuff. Come on, come taste how sweet. No, 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 I don't want to talk about it. Come, come taste it for yourself. It's the same thing, right? We're never going to truly know the benefits and the, the love of being united with Jesus unless we actually experience that, right? So spend time with him. That's the action point. Spend time with him. Create time for that. Number two, um, our unity with each other. This is, this is difficult, right? One of the, one of the ways, or the, I should say the primary way we do this here at our church is through what, what kind of our form of small groups are called gospel communities. And here's the deal. We can come on Sundays. There's, there's some unity taking place here in a spiritual way. Like we're united around the sacraments, around Lord's Supper, around the Word, singing. Those are unifying things. But this is, that's the easy work, right? That's the stuff that God is forming in us just by showing up here, which is awesome, which is good. Continue to do that. The hard work is actually doing life with other people who disagree with you, who have different preferences, who have different um, personalities, right? That's where it really gets difficult. We, it, when, we, when you're living life with people, um, you probably have to lay down some of your preferences. You'll probably have to lay down some of your opinions, um, when, you're, when you're upset with someone, um, you go talk to them personally, not let it stew and sit on it and, and get frustrated with them because you're not actually addressing that directly because that's what people in unity do. They address their differences head on, work through it. Hey, we're not, we don't have to agree on everything, but we need to talk about it if we're upset with each other. So we work through that. We talk about those things, right? You lay down your preferences. You ask, what is, what is best for this group for the sake of Jesus and his mission? And you aim for those things, which all of that is, is shaping and forming us into people that look more like Jesus. Because if you're never challenged by other people, if you never have to lay down your opinions, your preferences, your views for the sake of getting along with someone in unity, then you're, you're, you're missing a chance for God to shape you into the loving person, the, great, the, the Beatitudes person, that Sermon on the Mount person that he wants us all to aim at becoming. So we have to Pursue, pursue community. Pursue unity. If you're in here and you call Providence Road home and you're not in a gospel community, please get in one. 
please get in one. It's a mess. They're not all the same. They're not all working great. It's okay, but we're trying and we're aiming for unity around Jesus. And that is, over time, that's going to shape us. And it's going to allow people in the world to see our messy groups, our messy lives, and be able to peer in and say, why, why do they continue to meet weekly when they don't seem to agree? Or they're kind of different people in different life stages. They wouldn't normally hang out with each other, but yet they're here doing life together. That is attractive force for people outside the church to peer in and see. Um, I want to read um, this kind of quote from Leslie Newbegin. I think this kind of sums up a lot of what we're talking about, and then we'll close. The prayer of Jesus for a unity, which is, which is a real participation of believers in the love and obedience, which unites Jesus with the Father, a participation which is as invisible as the flow of sap which unites the branches with the vine, and which is at the same time as visible as the unity of the branch and the vine, as visible as the love and obedience of Jesus. It is this visible unity which will bring the world to believe and know what otherwise it does not know and cannot know, namely, God himself in his revelation as the Father of Jesus. Moreover, this unity will enable the world to know the love of God, not just as an idea or doctrine, but as a palpable reality experienced in the supernatural love which holds believers together in spite of all their human diversities. So that last point, do life with people. Get in community. Practice sacrificing, laying down, with pre- laying down your preferences, having hard conversations. We're about to do communion. One of the things the scripture says about communion is if you have somebody against your brother or sister, don't take communion. You need to go and have a hard conversation with them, and then you can come back and have communion. So maybe today is one of those days you sit out communion because you're thinking of someone that you're really not living in unity with right now. You're bitter, and, and, and that's someone maybe in your community group. Maybe it's somebody in the church, but you need to go and have a conversation with them before you come to the table and take communion. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word that we get to peer into these really intimate moments that Jesus had in his last days on earth with his disciples. Even a prayer that he has to his Father God, that we were able to hear what he said, because John is, is there writing it down and remembering it. And, and, and we, 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 we hear these words, and we're able to be formed by these words, to be shaped by these words, but, but, but we know this is difficult. We know this is hard. We know living in community is hard. And so I pray that we would be a people who would lay down our preferences because we follow the one who laid down everything on behalf of, of, of our sin. That he... Made, made him who, he became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus laid his life down in humility, and he calls us to lay our lives down in humility for the sake of others. And this is what gives us the power to live in unity. So help us. We need it. I need it. Help us be quick to forgive. Help us be quick to go make wrongs right. Help us not harbor bitterness and anger and not fill in the gaps. If, we're, if, if we think someone's mad at us, to, to fill in the gaps with worst-case scenario things that keep us apart, that we would go and we would talk to people and that we would say, hey, wh- what's going on? Help us be that kind of people as we do this hard work and this intentional work of living out unity in our day-to-day lives. And we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.